in the name of God, whose grace is ever transforming us. Amen. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It is astonishing to me that the first line of the first paragraph of the entire New Testament begins with the genealogy of Jesus. And if you come to my Bible study, I'm sorry because I talk about this all the time. I just, I think this is so amazing really because um, the genealogy of Jesus is the prologue to the gospel reading that uh, the, the lectionary writers gave us this morning. And instead of having us read this long list of names, they have us beginning with, now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place this way. But that isn't the beginning. Matthew begins the entire gospel with the genealogy. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Judah was the father of Perez and Terah by Tamar. David was the father of Solomon by Uriah's wife. Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram. Joram was the father of Uzziah. Okay, this is but a taste. And if I read the whole list to you, I'm, I'm sure that some of you would say, this is really boring. And you know how I feel about boring. But names matter. Names matter. When you think about it, gene- genealogies can come alive with, with stories that ground us and connect us and, and inspire us. And genealogies in the Bible always mean something. There are at least 25 genealogies in the Bible, and they matter. And Matthew begins his his genealogy with Abraham, the father of Isaac, and then he lists all 14 generations of the Hebrew patriarchs, from Abraham to David. And from David comes the other Judean kings for 14 more generations until they are deported to Babylon. And from the deportation um, in Babylon, we get 12 generations of mainly unknown Israelites, people like Akim and Azor and Zadok. They're unknown. They're unremarkable, really. And that list goes on until we get to Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. And what really interests me about this genealogy is that most of the names that Matthew has included and Matthew links Jesus to are the kind of people in our families that we don't want to claim, okay? We all have them. So take, for instance, Jacob, the father of Judah. Okay, so Judah was the brother, if you remember, of Joseph, the the guy with the coat of many colors, And so Judah and his brothers are jealous of Joseph, and they sell him off into slavery. They send him off to Egypt. And then Judah takes the money and spends it on women. True story. And so uh, Joseph is in Egypt, and he's become kind of a powerful guy, and a famine comes on Israel. And and Joseph saves his family. Um, He saves them from starvation, really, and then he forgives his brothers who've sold him into slavery. 
So Joseph seems in this story to be the one who embodies Jesus's message, Jesus's own story. But Matthew, Matthew links Jesus to Judah, not Joseph. You see, that's curious. Matthew also includes five women um, in Jesus's genealogy. Women rarely appear in genealogies in the Bible. And again, all of these women are all a part of scandal and scorn. Uh, So you take, for instance, Tamar. Tamar seduces her father-in-law, Judah, in order to have a son, Perez. And Rahab, she's a Canaanite. She's outside of the Israelite line. She's a prostitute, and she lives in the walls of Jericho. And she goes on to become the mother of, of Boaz, who Ruth, another outsider, a Moabite, she and her mother-in-law, Naomi, they, they scheme so that Boaz will marry Ruth. And their son goes on to become the, the grandfather of the great King David. But none of their stories are uncomplicated or straightforward or even saintly sounding. And lest we forget that Matthew's peculiar list of women um, culminates with Mary, the mother of Jesus. See, Mary and Joseph had been betrothed, and this is an idea that we don't have in our society. It's it's a two-part way to to get married, essentially, okay? And the first part is that, that your parents set you up with somebody, because that's how marriage worked for a really long time. So they, they, choose, Mary, they choose Joseph to, to marry Mary, and, and, and then uh, the second part comes along. They have this waiting period, and, and the husband finally gets to take the wife home. But that hasn't happened yet, so they're, they're in this waiting period when Joseph hears that she's with child. And I have to think that when he hears that she's with child, he must have concluded that she had been unfaithful. And under the law, he had two choices, really. He could publicly declare her infidelity, in which case she probably would have been stoned to death. Or he could quietly divorce her, which we're told he was going to do. And either way, his pride would remain intact, but she would live out her life as a scorned woman. You see, we don't want to admit it, really, but the story of Mary and Joseph is not this perfect hallmark movie or card that we make it out to be. Instead, it's a story full of pain and anguish. I mean, Joseph wrestled with what to do. And it took an angel showing up. And let me tell you, when an angel shows up, something big is going to happen, okay? This wasn't here this morning, so I don't know if this is a joke or not. (laughs) Um, But when an angel shows up, something big is going to happen, and it takes an an angel for Joseph to choose family. See, this is a complicated story. Like most of the lives in in Jesus' genealogy. You know, it isn't lost on me that this time of year, we are culturally pressured into our own perfect-seeming Christmas card Hallmark movie. And and the pressure is is to create this facade of perfection. And and your family may be perfect. 
Um, And I wish blessings upon you for that. But I've heard from a lot more of you this this year um, about your anguish over the anticipation of family gatherings um, and disappointment and the awkward situations that you're you're gonna find yourself in. And like my own family, some of some of your families may be grieving. And <clears throat> some of you are dealing with um, an imploding marriage or relationship. Or your child has hand, foot, and mouth disease just in time to infect the whole entire family. You know, there's so much pressure to, to create a different narrative than our reality this time of year. In fact, last week I received a Christmas card of the most beautiful and perfect children I've ever seen. Um, the, the, the two-year-old is sitting on a bench and the five-year-old is, is standing beside her and they're in these handmade, beautiful outfits. And I called my cousin to compliment her children and she said, Katie, that's not real. In fact, uh, the five-year-old was photoshopped into the picture because the two-year-old refused to have her picture made with him. And I thought, this is a microcosm of this facade of perfection that that we're made to to create. And I I think about Mary and Joseph during this time in their life, and and again, because of our, our cultural images, I think we tend to think of them all alone. You know, Mary, Joseph, and the donkey. Um, but that's, that's not how they would have traveled. It, it, in fact, I think we, we see them traveling alone, right, to go register, pay their taxes. Um, but in Judea, they would have traveled in a caravan full of people and family and community. And, and they lived with people and family and community, and that means that they had the pressure of family and obligations, And it's into that kind of communal life that they are given the unexpected news of a child that they aren't prepared for. A child that's going to be born outside of the conventional idea of their culture and their society and their religion. And the good news of the story is this. God has always worked through messy and broken families and people, even Jesus' family. You know, the genealogy of Jesus is full of the scheming and the noble and the impure and the unknown. And yet their stories are full of God's grace showing up over and over in new life, born out of the unexpected and often enough, born out of the barren people and places. You know, this is good news for us because by way of our our baptism, we're grafted into this family, this genealogy. The good news assures us that that the God who wrote the beginnings of this story with with crooked lines also writes the rest of the story with crooked lines. And those lines are us. That's our life. And it's not just, just lines. They're stories. It's our story. You know, our great hope is that God's grace shows up in the unexpected 
and the unconventional to transform our anguish and our imperfections into something new. And the challenge for us, just like the challenge for Joseph, is that that we have to put aside the conventional, the, the culturally created image of perfection, and it's an image that often creates our anguish. We have to put that aside and trust that God can work through our imperfections. For God never confuses our capacity with our circumstances. And by the grace of God, the capacity of our messy lives to be transformed is endless. Uh, As my grandmother would say, at the end of the day, you see, God's grace is bigger than our imperfections. And I can't think of any better news 